Amen. Great. Good to see you all. We are continuing our series in the book of Acts, part two. Uh, If you've got a Bible, do turn to chapter 11. We're sort of making progress chapter by chapter through this. This morning, we're going to be really looking at what makes a great church. What makes a great church? There's probably a, a multitude of different answers that people would give. Maybe it's um, really engaging time of worship or a hopefully a good sermon or just really good fellowship. I mean, you, maybe on your tick list, there's car parking space. Or, or decent coffee. I mean, there's probably hundreds and hundreds of different responses that we could get when we say what makes a great church. But I'd like to suggest that Luke, the author of Acts, would probably say that a great church is at its heart a missional church. In fact, Thinking again, he probably wouldn't even say that because he wouldn't have thought it was necessary to say because by definition, the church is, by by its very nature, missional. It's a family of believers together on a mission, to use our Family of Churches New Frontiers slogan. We're together on a mission. You know, the, the whole of Acts is basically about this continuing mission This work of Jesus Christ through his church by the power of his Holy Spirit. What is this mission? In a nutshell, it is simply to bear witness to what Jesus has already fully accomplished on the cross. We're a family together on a mission. And in the second half of this chapter that we're going to be looking at today, chapter 11, Luke focuses on what was most likely his home church, the church in Antioch. Luke was born in Antioch, and it probably makes sense that this was the church he was saved and added to. And so as we look at this brilliant, wonderful example of a church this morning, I want to just draw out some of its strengths some of its values that we can model here, hopefully we do already, but to a greater degree model here in Sutton. So let's read from uh, verses 19 to 30 of Acts chapter 11. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among the Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to the Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was on them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived, He saw what the grace of God had done. He was glad and encouraged them to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, 
And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught a great number of people. The disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. So last week, if you were with us, if you remember, Simon did a fantastic job of describing this seismic revelation that the gospel was also for the Gentiles, the non-Jews, the Greeks. In fact, God's plan had always been to bless every nation, every tribe, and every tongue through his son, Jesus Christ. Complete revelation, mind-blowing for those early Jewish converts. And what we see here is this beginning of the outworking of that revelation. So we've been looking at persecution had scattered the believers into neighboring regions and neighboring nations. God had used persecution to actually disperse the church beyond the boundaries of Jerusalem into Judea, Samaria, and ultimately to the ends of the earth. And out they went sharing the gospel And as we read in verse 19, initially just to fellow Jews, couldn't stop talking about Jesus, even under persecution. But as we read, some of them, a group from Cyprus, which is incidentally where Barnabas was from, and a group from Cyrene, which is in modern day Libya, if you're interested, start sharing the gospel to the Greeks in Antioch. They couldn't shut up about Jesus. They were willing to tell anyone who would listen to them. With breathtaking results, as we say, a great number of people were brought to the Lord. They couldn't stop talking about Jesus. And so the church was established. Now, Antioch was a huge city. It's about half a million population at that time. It's way bigger than Jerusalem, nearly 10 times bigger than Jerusalem. And it was thought of as the, the third most important city in the Roman Empire after Rome itself and Alexandria. It was really, really influential. Kind of functioned as the, the capital of, of Syria. What a great place to plant a church. A great place to act as a springboard to impact the rest of the world. But really the first strength, the first value that I want to draw out from this church, which is so important, is that it was founded on the grace of God. This was a a church with a culture of grace. When Barnabas turned up at Antioch, what did he see? Some wonderful teaching programs, marvelous building projects. No, he saw what the grace of God had done. 
You know, the very fact that Jews from, from other nations felt compelled to share the good news with their Gentile brothers and sisters was an incredible act of grace, clearly motivated by the Holy Spirit. Amazing act of grace. And notice that these are ordinary, everyday people. These aren't the apostles. The apostles stayed in Jerusalem. These aren't trained missionaries. They hadn't done three years of church planting seminars. They, they haven't even got to, you know, headline speakers. They were ordinary, everyday believers. There wasn't even an official sending church. It was persecution that had sent them into that area. You know, all those sort of things that are helpful and good, but actually what builds the church is simply the grace of God at work through ordinary men and women who can't stop talking about Jesus. That's what builds a church. It's not rocket science. And it's a church that literally changed the world. Ordinary people sharing the gospel even to the Greeks, and because of that, the door was opened for those who were originally excluded from the promises of God and the inheritance were now brought near into the family of God and to, into all the inheritance that was now theirs too in Jesus Christ. Amazing, amazing grace. And I think it's so important for us as a church to constantly remind ourselves that we are totally reliant on the grace of God, if we're going to impact this borough, if we're going to impact the nations. You know, we've got a wonderful building. It's not going to save Sutton, is it? <laughs> it's a wonderful tool. You know, not, not having slicker teaching programs, not having, you know, snazzier website designs, all wonderful tools, but ultimately it is the grace of God working through ordinary men and women talking about Jesus. There was uh, Robert Morrison. I've just been reading about some of the missionaries to China. Robert Morrison was one of the first, in fact, he was the first Protestant missionary to China. And, and somebody said, uh, now, Mr. Morrison, do you really expect that you are going to make any impression on the idolatry of the Chinese empire? To which he replied, no, sir, but I expect that God will. That was his confidence, not in himself, not in his gift mix, but in the grace of God working through his obedience and his faith. You know, and as these Gentiles experienced firsthand the grace of God through their foreign neighbors, you know what? They then modeled this grace to one another. This church had a culture of grace which was so important because strength number two, it was also an incredibly diverse church, and yet there was such unity there. We've already been praying and talking and singing about unity this morning. They had a culture of unity in diversity because Antioch wasn't just a massive city. It was also hugely cosmopolitan. Very similar to London. You know, it was described as a melting pot of different nations. In fact, it was described as all the world in one city. Hugely cosmopolitan. You have people 
Greek-speaking people. You had Hellenistic Greek-speaking Jews. You had people from Persia. It even drew people as far away as India and China. It was a real melting pot, so much so it was known as the Queen of the East. Really diverse community. And you know, since the third century BC, there have been Hellenistic, these Greek-speaking Jews living there. They were given equal status as citizens there along with the Greeks. And, you know, I was thinking about it, how easy it would have been for those Jews moving, fleeing from persecution in Jerusalem to kind of stuck with their own. We know some Jews up there will go and hang out with their own. Us, us Jewish Christians need to stick together. And yet there, there was no sign of that. It would have been very easy for them to have had this ghetto mentality. We've got to stick together. We're under persecution after all. There's no sign of that. Instead, they are the ones who are reaching out to the Greeks. That speaks volumes to me. You know, this is actually before Peter has this revelation that we looked at last week on the rooftop. Already, God was doing a uniting work in the hearts of these new converts. And don't forget the, the Jewish experience of worship up to that point would have been segregated worship separated Jews and Gentile believers by this wall, very literal wall. They were in, in every way breaking down barriers as they went. Living proof of what Paul was later to describe in Ephesians 2, that Jesus had indeed made the two one by demolishing that dividing wall of hostility. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two. This was a wonderful picture of that. The church in Antioch, a wonderful picture of that. Wonderful picture of what heaven will be like. Every tribe, every nation, every tongue. Worshipping as one. Wonderful picture of what Jesus was like. Breaking down social, economic barriers all the time. You know, it, it seems as you read through this that not only did the church in Antioch keep on talking about Jesus, they also acted like Jesus. So much so that they got labeled, they got given a nickname, Little Christs or Christians. For the first time, most commentators say it was probably a derogatory term, a bit of a put down. Apparently, Antioch was famed for its sarcastic wit and put downs. Again, sounds a bit like London, doesn't it? Oh, there goes another one of those Christians. But isn't that an interesting testimony? They were so radically different, they were so radically inclusive, they got labeled. It's also interesting that the term Christian originally stood for inclusiveness. Interesting now, isn't it, how you mention the word Christian today, and a lot of the time people think of judgmental, exclusive. It's interesting, isn't it? Complete opposite. I suppose the challenge for us is let's redefine that by what we model the reputation that we give it, little Christ-like ones. You know, we live in a very diverse community, don't we? London, it's wonderful. But although we are used to it, we can still fall into this ghetto mentality far too easily. You know, hanging out with people like ourselves, little cliques, 
And I just want to challenge us. Let's be intentional at taking every opportunity to break down any hint of exclusiveness, any hint of cliques, you know, trying to model at every turn and every occasion inclusiveness. We need to be intentional about that. You know, I mean, even little things like making sure that when we gather on a Sunday, we we intentionally speak to people we don't know or don't know that well. Get to know them better. When you come on a Sunday, make it your intention. I'm going to get to know someone else a little bit better. It all helps. It all helps. Start shifting this culture into one of greater inclusiveness. I mean, making sure your natural friendship circles, which we all have and are great, but making sure that they don't appear exclusive to other people on the outside. It's simply thinking of others, isn't it? It's simply keeping your eyes open to those particularly who are a bit different to you or who you think are a bit different. So often when you get to know people, you realize there's so many common interests, so many things that link you together. But whatever you do, be intentional. Because when you are, you're modeling something of the heart and the culture that was in this Antioch church. It's powerful. So we broke bread together. It's this unity that Jesus prayed for. It's actually modeling the heart of God, isn't it? Ultimately. Third strength from this church in Antioch that we see is that they really valued the word and the spirit. And we use that phrase word and spirit a lot here. We describe ourselves as a a church of the word and the spirit. That's our aim. That's our intention. By that, we simply mean that we hold the word of God, scripture with the highest regard. It's the final authority in our lives. And we seek to line our lives up to the word of God. But it also means that we also actively pursue the Holy Spirit. We pursue life in the Spirit. We seek to grow in spiritual gifts. We're hungry for God's presence by His Holy Spirit. And of course, the two go hand in hand. They can't. They shouldn't ever be separated. They're totally entwined, God's Word and God's Spirit. And what we see in this church is a real hunger, firstly, for the Word of God. There's a hunger to learn and to grow. We see this in the way they receive Barnabas. I mean, think about that. Here was a guy sent from the church in Jerusalem to check them out. I don't know. I'd feel a little bit insecure if that was me. Who who are you coming to check us out? It's almost a bit big brother, isn't it? ish, isn't it? You know, actually, that, and yet there's no hint of them saying, you know what, Barnabas, thank you, but we've done pretty well, as you can see, by ourselves. We don't need any interference from the outside. Can you just leave us to do our own thing? There wasn't a hint of that. There wasn't a hint of individualism, because actually it wasn't about building their little church and their little empire. It was all about building the kingdom of God. And they received Barnabas. The other thing to notice is Barnabas didn't come with a big list of qualifications. You know, I've spent seven years in theological college and all this stuff. What were his qualifications? That he was good. 
that he was full of the Holy Spirit, and that he was full of faith. You know, what that speaks to me of is, listen, don't disqualify yourself because you think you lack the necessary skills or gifts. What God is primarily looking for is men and women of faith and are filled with the Spirit through which He can do His work through. That is what He's primarily looking for. Men and women, good men and women of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. And what did Barnabas see when he arrived there? He saw the grace of God all over this place. You know, he could have been quite legalistic, couldn't he? He could have come in here and said, whoa, let's dial this down. We don't quite know where we're going with this. Let's just wait till the Council of Jerusalem kind of check this out. But no, he saw. He had faith to see what God was doing. And he encouraged them to remain true to God. You know, a, a little encouragement goes a long way. Let's, let's have a culture of encouragement in this place. Again, as that word came that Michaela brought from yesterday, we're on the same side. Let's champion one another. Let's encourage one another. Spur one another on. It really is releasing. It's strengthening. It's freeing when you encourage someone. He encourages them not to deviate from the truth, but to keep proclaiming Jesus. That, again, that's just the message, isn't it? We proclaim Jesus. We proclaim his death, his resurrection, his victory over sin and hell and death. We proclaim that all who call on his name, either Jew or as it appears Gentile as well, will be saved. And it's so important. They needed to have that message. Remain true. Remain true. Because think about it. They live in a context that must have had so many different influences. I mean, for a start, they were breaking new ground here. It's a Gentile church. It was a non-Jewish church. What was going on? They lived in a city full of paganism. Influences from the east, from the west. Full of immorality. They needed to remain true to the word of God and to the teachings of the apostles. And to help them in this, Barnabas goes and gets Paul, who's still being called Saul. He doesn't get called Paul until he's on Cyprus. Calls Saul to help teach the church. And again, what does that say to me? It says to me that Barnabas doesn't have an ego either. It's not about Barnabas' mission international. It's not about his ministry, is it? He's like, wow, I know a guy who's called to the Gentiles. Here's a Gentile church. I better go and get him. There was just a real open-handedness with the way Barnabas kind of saw what God was doing. Again, it was about building the kingdom. But just get your head around how that must have impacted the church. Think about it. Here was a church founded through persecution. Many of those members of that church would have had to have left everything left their homes, their livelihoods, probably loved ones, and fled from Jerusalem and found themselves in Antioch. And now Barnabas was bringing to them the very guy that they were fleeing from. And they accept him. And not just as a church member. You know, it's not like Barnabas says, I know this guy's got a past. I know he's got a bit of a history, but can you please just welcome him in? It's like, actually, guys... He's going to join the leadership team. He's going to be teaching you. Amazing grace, isn't it? Incredible forgiveness modeled through this church. Incredible trust in God's 
redemptive power. And so together they teach this church for a year, putting in strong foundations, which is which just stand them in good stead, because they needed to be a strong missionary base. They needed that. They were a people rooted in the Word of God, but also open to the Spirit of God. Very open. They were a prophetic people. Acts 13 talks a little bit more about their leadership structure. And it says there were teachers, but also prophets there. They were a church of the Word and the Spirit. And shaped by the prophetic, when Agapus, this visiting prophet, comes and says, there's going to be a famine. They don't just say, well, we're just going to weigh this up. No, they respond. They respond. And not even by saying, okay, we're going to pray for this situation. Thank you for bringing this to our attention. We're going to pray. Of course, prayer is massively powerful. But you know what? They were prepared to be the answer themselves to this prayer as they gave each one as they were able. They were shaped by the prophetic, moved by the Spirit of God into action. How are we at that? How are we at being shaped by the prophetic? Do we take on board what God is saying to us? And are we moved into action? I think the reason they were is because final point, final strength is at the very heart of this church was this culture of mission that we were talking about earlier on. This was a church with a global perspective. You know, they weren't wrapped up in their little Antioch bubble. Yes, they were reaching their city, but their vision was so much bigger, so much bigger. And we see this in the way they respond to this famine. You know, it's not just about us looking after our own, you know, come on, we, we, after all, we're, we've been persecuted, we've lost everything. No, they said, we're, we're with you, we're with our brothers and sisters, Jews, Gentiles, whatever, we're going to give, we're going to support you. You know, don't forget, this was the church in Jerusalem where there were no needy people originally. This church in Jerusalem had modeled great generosity to one another. Now they were on the receiving end of somebody else's generosity. I love how God works that way. They have a global perspective. And we see this even more clearly when you get to Acts 13. And while the church is worshiping and fasting, you just see this hunger for God again. God tells them to set aside their two best leaders, Saul and Barnabas. I mean, again, what a challenge. What a challenge. Really? They're the ones who are teaching this church. They're the ones who are giving it strength. If we lose them, what's going to become of the church? I think if Paul was, was on, on our leadership team here, I think I'd be a bit reluctant to let him go, keep him busy. You know, can you just do another sermon series on our identity in Christ? Or you know, can he teach us again on justification by faith? I don't know. I'd, I'd keep him busy. I wouldn't want him to go. And yet, in obedience, they joyfully sent them off. It's like, really? But it was totally this generous, selfless, open-handed approach to what God had blessed them with that enabled this church in Antioch to become this mighty springboard for world mission. You know, you and I, sitting here, are part of that legacy of what they did. 
this message to the Gentiles, this world mission. What a challenge. What a challenge. John Stott once said, it is the responsibility of every local church, especially the leaders, to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit in order to discover whom he may be gifting and calling to go. And in a very real sense, all of us have that call to go and talk about Jesus wherever we are. But I really believe that God has called and will call probably many of us to go to other towns and other nations. You know, maybe he's already laid that passion on your heart. We need to be willing to listen to the Holy Spirit and have an open-handed approach. Will we give our best? Will we grasp this global mission? You know, as I said, New Frontiers, this family of churches that we've been part of and are part of for years has had this slogan, together on a mission. And you know what? There is a real joy in partnering with other churches and other ministries as we share the gospel around the world. It's been so great to see how John and Sophie in Istanbul have gone with their whole family and beginning to see real fruit there. It's been a real privilege to partner with them in that. I was speaking to Sam Amara, as many of you will know, from Lagos in Nigeria last week. He's hoping to come next year. But you know what? They are desperate to raise new leaders because people are coming to the Lord. They need to plant new churches. He was like, do I know of any leadership structure where we can train new leaders. So I commented about the academy. Who knows what will go forward from there. But it's a real joy to see what God is doing around the world. And maybe God has put a nation or even a people group in this country that he's asked you to reach. I'd love to pray with you when we draw this service to a close. But let this example of the Antioch church be an encouragement to us. When we were planted as a church so many years ago now, there was quite a few prophetic words about us being an Antioch church. What a wonderful model to, to follow. Let's use them as an encouragement to us to embrace this, this missional culture, to, to really embrace being a church full of grace, full of diversity, full of the Word and Spirit of God, and to be a springboard for the gospel to the nations in our generation. Amen? Amen. Why doesn't the band come back? We're just going to...